Thanks for joining us today. We love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So we encourage you to share your story with us at info at fellowshipgj.com. Also, if God is using this ministry to impact you, we want to encourage you to partner with us financially. You can do that online at fellowshipgj.com and pick the giving option that works best for you. Help us continue to bring the message of Christ to our community and beyond. Again, thanks for joining us and enjoy today's message. So you don't have to be a huge music person for music to profoundly affect you. Sometimes it'll just take a note or a lyric and all of a sudden you're transported back to another era in your life where memories just kind of flood you. And for me, I remember growing up, and I'm not a huge music person, but we would go to school dances and we would do all this stuff. And there was a particular song that was always played during my adolescence, and uh, it's this song. See if you recognize it. So that song took on a whole new level of crazy, although I don't know if it would top that. Um, when my eighth grade Spanish teacher decided that she was going to have us all translate the lyrics of that song into Spanish and then work up a rap as a class and then she was going to videotape us with like an ancient, huge, ginormous camcorder. Thank God it was in the era before YouTube because it was awkward, it was so uncomfortable, but crazy thing, apparently that was a thing because I googled Spanish class translation of Ice Ice Baby and all kinds of videos came up. How could that possibly be a thing? If you're really bored, check it out. Thank goodness my class isn't actually there. But remember a song can take you to any, a particular song can take you back to a moment. And maybe for you a certain song brings you back to the summer you spent as a lifeguard. Or maybe a particular song reminds you of falling in love. Or maybe a song takes you back to your midlife crisis where you're cruising in the convertible with the top down and, and the radio blaring. And just in a moment, you're somewhere different, experiencing something different. And music has that effect on us. But Christian music, worship music, even more so. Because sometimes when we experience a song where God profoundly affected us, then all of a sudden that song reminds us forever of that moment with God and how he touched us and how he changed our lives. Now there's a particular old chorus or old hymn, I'm not even sure what it is, that really affected me. I remember this song as a kid. Now, I was told that I'm not appropriately musical, so Julie's gonna sing it for us, and if you know it, sing along. The song is timeless. Just a few weeks ago or months ago now, my sons were walking around the house singing it. And I don't even know really where they learned it. We didn't teach it to them. But the words meant something to them. Take a look at their version. So cute. Apparently they're appropriately musical. But these kids, my sons, they have no idea the power in the song that they're singing. They don't know the full meaning of the lyrics and, and the depths of Jesus' love, but that's the beauty of music, right? They sing the song. They learn the words. It gets like ingrained in their mind and in their soul. And then someday, as they grow up or they go through a hard time, then God brings that song to their minds, to their memory, and really shows them the meaning of that song. I know because that's what he did for me. A couple months back in the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning, Jesus woke me up. Now you have to understand, I love my sleep. We have three kids, we don't sleep enough. 
And so I don't like to wake up in the middle of the night, but Jesus woke me up in the night and he started to speak to me about the meaning of this old chorus. And it wrecked me. It totally changed my life. And it all begins with Romans chapter five, verse eight. It says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While I was at my worst, Jesus came for me. He came for me. He pursued me. He searched me out and he found me. While I was like spitting in his face, with my actions and with my sins, with my selfishness and my indifference. I was spitting in his face with my half-hearted religion, with my on-again, off-again Jesus game. I was spitting in his face when he decided that he still wanted me, that he'd always wanted me, and Jesus came for me. He stood up from his seat at the right hand of the Father. He looked down through time and eternity. He took off his royal robes of purple kingliness and he laid them down to come for me. He clothed himself in the frailties of humanity. And he was born in vulnerability. He lived a life of perfection that stood in stark contrast to my own imperfections. And he set all of heaven aside. He astounded all of heaven when he did it, when, he, when Jesus came for me. And all the while, I wallowed in the stink of my own sin, and he had his eye on me. All the while, I prostituted myself out to a million lesser causes. I threw myself at comforts that did not comfort and loves that did not love me back. And he had his gaze fixed on me. He treasured me while I treated him with contempt and familiarity. Jesus came for me. And oh, how they punished him for coming. They mocked and they jeered and they rolled their eyes. They screamed and they blasphemed and they hated they lied and they falsely accused him of so many things, all because he came for me. They whipped and beat and scourged his back and his flesh hung like ribbons as he carried the cross publicly. The punishment that was meant for me, he spilt his blood to satisfy the debt I owed. My Jesus came for me. And he scooped me out of the dirt, the dirt I wallowed in, and he washed me clean, and he dressed me in the purest of purest whites. Though I deserve none of this, Jesus came for me. And when we grasp that Jesus loved us first, and Jesus loves us best, and Jesus loves us still, when we grasp how truly and deeply and completely and freely and unconditionally he really loves us and how nothing that we do or say or think or are or aren't can change or lessen or take away his love. When we grasp that we can't earn it, we can't deserve it, even if we are perfect from now until the end of eternity, that all we can do is just receive it and be truly changed by it. When we begin to understand the depths and the width of the love of God, 
We are drawn deeper and deeper into that love. Jesus' love is like the quicksand that I never want to escape, that draws me in. The deeper I go, the deeper I want to go. Oh, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. You see, this This Sunday morning thing, this isn't an obligation. It's not blind obedience. It's not religion. It's not a desire for power or a hope for reputation or like a need to be noticed. This, this gathering is all about love. All about a real love from God that reached out to us. Matthew chapter 13 in the Bible, Jesus is teaching. And he's trying to get his followers to understand the kingdom of heaven. And in essence, who God really is and how he really loves. And so throughout Matthew 13, he tells a series of parables. And each parable starts with this phrasing. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a. And in verse 44, he tells what we know to be the shortest parable in the entire Bible. It's just one verse. I'm going to read it to you this morning. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again, and he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Now, if you've been in church for any period of time or you've ever been to like a youth camp, you've heard a youth pastor get up and give the traditional interpretation of this text. And they get up and they say something like, guys, you gotta find the kingdom of God, and when you do, you give up everything. Like, soccer and and popularity and you you just give it all up and you pursue God that's what they that's what we say that's what many people have said for years is the meaning of Matthew 13 44 they make it seem like like the treasure is the kingdom of God or God itself and that we're the man and we're searching for some purpose or meaning in life and then we find God and we forsake everything to show God or to gain God or to gain the kingdom of heaven, right? Many people have heard and taught that interpretation. And this morning I'd like to present to you that I think that is wrong. I don't think that's the correct interpretation of Matthew 13, 44. No disrespect. But here's why I think it. First of all, we cannot find the kingdom. We don't find it. God finds us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for our sin. God went looking for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, didn't go looking for God. God sent his son to die for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The idea that we see over and over in scripture is not that we find God, but that God finds us. That God searches us out and he seeks us and he saves us. Why? I don't know. 
the more natural understanding of like, we have to earn it, we have to gut it out, we have to work it, but that's not the gospel, that's religion. And so the reason I think this is incorrect is that the truth is we can't find the kingdom. The second reason is we can't hide the kingdom. This verse says that after it was this treasure was discovered, that the man hid it again. We can't hide the kingdom of God. Maybe I could hide the light of God in me, or, or you could hide the light of God in you at school or in the workplace, but we can't hide the kingdom of God. The ki- God is at work in the hearts and lives of seven billion people. We can't hide that. We don't have that kind of authority. We don't have that kind of power to, to take God's work on the planet and hide it. So we can't find it, and we also can't hide it. And thirdly, we can't buy it. The kingdom of God is it's not for sale. We can't gather together enough money or effort or good deeds or anything like that to, to gain the kingdom. God does not put his kingdom up for sale. And, and even if he did, not one of us in this room would be able to ever afford the kingdom. God doesn't take money. God doesn't take bribes. God doesn't even take good works to gain the kingdom. Nothing we can do can afford us the kingdom. And for those reasons, I think the traditional interpretation of this one-sentence parable are incorrect. So let me tell you what I think the parable really means. I think that the man is Jesus because the word became flesh, right? God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh, and I think the field is the whole world, all of humanity. And I think the treasure is you. Now, allow me to read it again, and we're going to put it up with some changes to capitalization. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the original languages of the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, in Hebrew, there is no capitalization at all. It doesn't exist. In ancient Greek, every letter was in its capitalized form. So a lot of times when you look at the Bible, you can't necessarily tell based on capitalization in every case what's going on. So I took a liberty here and I, and I added the capitalization to illuminate the meaning that I think best supports this text. And it's not just me. Other scholars also agree. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man, Jesus, discovered hidden in the field, in the world, right? In his excitement, he hid it again. And then he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Jesus gave it all away. What? Heaven. Everything. Royalty, the throne, he, he just forsook it all to go after us. This is not a parable about something that we do to get or to earn or to buy God's love or his loyalty. This is a parable about what Jesus has already done. He already bought the kingdom. And what's the kingdom? Is it brick and stained glass and church buildings? No. The kingdom of God is people redeemed by God. So when when Jesus bought the kingdom, what was he buying? He was buying you and me. He bought us. He willingly gave it all up, all heaven, all royalty, his rightful place on the throne, his authority. He laid it all down, and he came to earth to buy us because we, to him, are a treasure. 
Deuteronomy 7 says, you are a special treasure to me. And that's what God is saying to us this morning, that you are valuable, that you are worth an enormous amount. Now, if we think about something like, how much is something really worth? I mean, you can throw out a number about how much something is worth, but, but ultimately, something is worth what someone is willing to pay for it. You might say, oh, my house is worth $200,000, but if no one will buy it for that, it's not really right. Okay, so I have a baseball. And this baseball is a little bit used, a little bit beat up, a little bit dirty. How much do you think this baseball is worth? A couple bucks, right? A couple bucks. So what if I told you that this baseball's been through a little bit more than that? This isn't just a regular baseball. This is a baseball that was used in a major league baseball game. Then people might be willing to pay a little bit more for this ball. Or if I said, not only that, but this baseball was, was used in a game that Babe Ruth played in, and he hit a home run off this exact ball. Now it's worth, like, even more, right? But what if I told you that this was the baseball that was hit in the home run by Babe Ruth in the All-Star game? Then sportsmemorabilia.com says it's one of the most valuable pieces of baseball memorabilia on the planet. Why? Is it baseball? No. Because of what it's been through. Because of what it's been through. And a lot of times we as humans, we think, oh, I'm not very valuable because of what I've been through. I've been through too much. I've done things that I'm not proud of. And so my, my value is diminished. But that's not how it works at all. God says that you are worth the highest price that has ever been paid for any human being ever. You are valued at the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is the price that was paid for you. And the Bible says it clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so no other person was held for ransom for more money or more value than you. When Jesus said, I will pay with my blood to buy this treasure, you. And so when we look at what Jesus did, that Jesus laid it all out and he laid it all down. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The ushers are coming around right now and they're starting to distribute the elements of communion. And when they come to your row, simply take one of each item. If you're seated by your small child, just make an individual decision as to whether or not your child is old enough to understand the spiritual symbolic significance that this is communion and not like a mid-church snack. That's kind of a mom and dad thing, but once you have your elements, just hold on to those and... Um, Keep on listening to the sermon. We're going to come back to those at the ends and partake of communion altogether. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And when Jesus came for us with this type of love, with this type of extravagant, sloppy, passionate, that I don't care who sees or who knows that I'm in love type of love, that Jesus loved us 
first with, then automatically it, it like solicits a response. Like we receive Jesus' love in us in that fashion. And, and, and then we have to have this reciprocating response, like a reflex response. Because he loved me, I love because Jesus loved me with this sloppy, extravagant, real, complete, whole kind of love that I love in this same manner. 1 John chapter 4 says, we love because he loved us first. Right? That's where the song comes from. We love. Who do we love? God? Yes. Each other? Yes. Our spouse? Yes, our children, yes, our coworkers, yes, our enemies, yes, the whole world, yes. We love because he loved us first, because Jesus invented love, and he created love, and he showed us what love really is, and then he lavished it upon us. We love because he loved. We know what love is. We, we can love our spouse because Jesus demonstrated love. We can love our children because Jesus demonstrated for us love. We can love our enemies because Jesus demonstrated for us love. And when Jesus' sloppy, extravagant love is poured out unashamed, then, then it creates this, this reciprocal response. I love you too. I love you too, Jesus, like from the depths of my heart. I love you because you loved me when I was forgettable. You loved me when I was unknown. You loved me when I was ordinary, when I was a giant mess. You loved me. You came for me. And because you came for me, I will go for you. That's the reflex response. He loves us, so now we love others. He came for us, so now we go for him. That's the trade. That's the reflex response that God gave us love, and so now we give love to others. And this love makes me want to worship. Not forces me to sing songs, but makes me want to worship. And this love makes me want to serve other people. Not forces me to do religious obligation, but makes me want to share the love with other people through serving. This love makes me want to give. Not force to give, but, but want to to give because of love. Love becomes the central motivator of everything we do. It makes me want to reprioritize our whole family schedule and evaluate the kids' sports and say, you know what? Having them at practice and having them at every single game isn't as valuable as having them learn the love of God. Because he loved me, we're going to, he centered his life around me. I'm going to center our family life around him. And everything else that we thought mattered and everything else we thought we loved and needed becomes like garbage in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus and his love for us. Philippians chapter 3 says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but I now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And if, if Jesus isn't soliciting this type of response from you, 
this type of reflex, then I submit respectfully that, that maybe you don't really know his love. Because once you taste his love, you can't help it. Once you taste the real depths, not the religious, not the surface, but once you taste the fullness of his love, you can't help but love him back. You can't help but love others on his behalf. You can't help but go because he came. And so if that's not happening, that exchange of his love motivating your love isn't happening, then something is missing. And I challenge you to press deeper into Jesus. Press deeper into his love because something bigger is available to you. You can experience something more from him. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. How I love Jesus because, because I'm so great or religious or spiritual, but because he first loved me. Jesus is so good, so rich, so fulfilling. And like an addict, I gladly give up everything else to just have one more ounce, just one more minute in his presence, in his love. By now, the communion elements have reached you and you hold in your hand a symbol of the bread and a symbol of Christ's blood, the wine, the grape juice. I want to take you back in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it says, On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread. And he said to his disciples, This is my body. Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in that moment, Jesus gave us this beautiful symbol. And he said, every time you, you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you're announcing my coming. You're, you're announcing what I did. You're announcing that I came for you. Every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing this until I come again. And he said, do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we hold in our hand the bread, the symbol of Jesus coming. And maybe you're here this morning and you said in your heart, like, what? That's what Jesus is? That's who Jesus is? That's what Jesus has done for me? And right now, I can't think of a more beautiful moment than, than holding the symbol of the body of Jesus than to, than to ask you, if this is the first time you're realizing who Jesus is, this is a perfect time to ask him to be the Lord, the leader of your life from this moment forward. So as you're holding this bread, if you recognize, I don't have a relationship with God through Jesus like what you talked about this morning, then I would invite you to pray a simple prayer in your heart like this. It's the simplest prayer costs everything. It's free, but it costs everything. It changes everything. And it goes like this. It goes, dear Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner, that I'm a mess without you, and I'm sorry for those mistakes in my life. I turn away from my sins, from my patterns, 
from the way I used to live. And I turn to you. You're my Lord. You're my leader. You're my master from this moment forward. I believe you, Jesus, died on the cross and you rose again. And I want to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we take the bread, the next thing the scripture lets us know that we should do is we should be introspective. We should evaluate ourselves. And so as you're searching your own heart in these moments right before we partake of the bread, you ask yourself some questions like, God, is there anything in between you and me that we haven't talked about? Maybe is the way you talk to your family on the way out the door to church this morning. Maybe it's a larger habit that you haven't been able to break and that you can talk to them about right now. Maybe it's an attitude. Just in the privacy of your heart, don't let anything be unconfessed, anything out of whack between you and God in this moment. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. We thank you that you came, that you willingly put yourself in the position to die on the cross for our sins. We receive your forgiveness. We thank you for it. And we partake of this symbol of your body together right now. In Jesus' name, amen. the same chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus then took the cup and he called it the cup of the new covenant. The old covenant was the old way of doing things before Jesus was to die and the old covenant was religion. The old covenant was working and earning God's favor by acting perfect or offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice when you did mess up. And Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It means a new way of living and interacting with God. This is the cup of the new covenant, a covenant of grace and mercy and love, and passion. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And it's symbolic of the blood of Jesus that was spilt Jesus, you see, he allowed his body to be broken, but he also allowed his blood to spill out. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. So Jesus allowed his blood to be spilt, to be poured out on the ground for us. And one of the beautiful truths about the blood of Jesus is it offers us healing. And maybe you're here this morning and you need healing. Maybe you need healing in your body. Maybe your back is hurting. Maybe you have horrific migraines. I believe that as you hold the cup of the new covenant that's a symbol of the blood of Jesus, that God could heal you right now in your seat. Maybe the healing you need is in your heart. Maybe your heart is broken. Or maybe you need healing in your minds because you're racked with depression. But whatever your need for healing is, as you hold the cup of symbolic of Jesus' blood, ask him for healing in that area of your life.
Jesus, you didn't have to. You didn't have to shed your blood. You didn't have to allow yourself, the king of glory, to be crucified on a cross. That punishment was meant for us. We were the guilty ones, but Jesus, you took our place. That's the most beautiful truth that we could ever understand. And Lord, as we hold this cup that's symbolic of this new covenant, that's symbolic of your blood, we thank you for it. We thank you for your act of love on the cross. And we drink this cup together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even all the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God as revealed to us in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the celebration that is communion. And we just want you to know that we're not here this morning because we have to be. We're here this morning because we want to be. God, we want to love you back because you loved us first. And as we leave this place, God, we pray that our lives would, would be like an echo of your love to us, that we would love our families, that we would love our coworkers, we would even love our enemies because of your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message at Fellowship Church. If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do that right now. I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are Lord and confess that you are my savior that you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again. And God, I thank you for that. I ask you to be my savior, to guide my life, and to give me a home forever in heaven with you. And God, I ask you this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. If you just prayed this prayer for the first time, or if you need additional prayer, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at 970-245-PRAY or at prayer at fellowshipgj.com. Thanks again, and we hope to see you next week.